You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The While Never Make It podcast presents the Spotlight Series, an in-depth look at those making a difference in the arts and beyond. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and today I sit down with Andy Clausen, Artistic Director of the New York Youth Symphony Jazz Program. Originally from Seattle, Washington, and a graduate of the Juilliard School, Andy is a celebrated and award-winning trombonist and composer, having played in jazz festivals all around the world. He talks with me about his work and compositions for his solo projects, his quartet, The Westerlies, and his 15-piece ensemble, The Split Stream Big Band, as well as film scores and documentary soundtracks. But it is his work with students and the next generation of jazz artists that inspires and motivates him the most. Andy, thank you so much for inviting me to Brooklyn. <laughs> thank you for coming this long This distance. long journey, right? Right? So, uh, so tell me a little bit about, about your life before the Youth Symphony. I was born in Seattle, Washington in 1992. Oh, start while, at the very beginning. While Hurricane Good. Andrew was raging oh, on right. the East Coast. I was not named after the hurricane, however. Uh, and I moved to New York in 2010 at age of 18 to go to Juilliard. And I did my undergraduate in jazz trombone performance there. How did you get into the trombone specifically? In fourth grade, my public school had a band program and anyone could enroll. And I sort of had the feeling that everyone wanted to play saxophone or drums and that I would probably have a better chance of getting into the top band in middle school or high school if I picked something that no one wanted to play, which is the trombone. Brilliant. It was the... Different thing to do. <laughs> I played sort of for fun for most of those early years, and it wasn't until high school that I started to think about pursuing that seriously. Once I made that decision, it was total obsession. And it wasn't necessarily jazz trombone, it was more music. And mm-hmm. I was also interested in composition and production and recording. The reason to choose Juilliard was both for the institution and also it was my ticket to New York. It was the cheapest way for me to come (laughs) live in New York. What was the audition process like to get into Juilliard? 
Uh, very intense. Mm -hmm. So there's first a pre-screening process where you send in a recording of you playing and fill out a lengthy application. And then they invite a select number of people to New York for live auditions. And I'll never forget, uh, right before the audition, I was so nervous, I ran to a bathroom down the hall and threw up. Oh, wow. And then rinsed my mouth out, went in, <laughs> stood in front of a panel of literally jazz legends. Uh, Ron Carter, Kenny Barron, Steve Ture, oh, wow. Conrad Herwig, Carl Allen. And I was absolutely terrified. They had a way of sort of saying things to throw you off guard as a way of testing how you performed under pressure. So as, as if the audition process isn't pressure right. enough. So I think he made like it. some remark about my tie or something. But it must have gone okay because right. they invited me to join the program. They only accept however many seats they have in the big band at Makes that sense. year. Yeah. So the year before they accepted zero. So I was very, very lucky you hit it in the terms right of the timing yeah. that they had three openings. I was always gravitating towards jazz. My middle school and high school had very, very strong jazz programs. And so that's where I found the most interest. And that's where all my friends were focusing. And that's sort of how my love of this music began. And so your focus was as a performer of jazz. When did the, the teaching element come into play? Actually at Juilliard, one of the core components of their curriculum was sending the students out as educators and ambassadors of the program. Oh, so okay. every spring break, we would do a tour in Utah and Nevada doing educational outreach. And then in the summer, they would send you out as a teacher at the summer camps that the jazz program ran. And so that was sort of my first experience teaching in that setting. I loved it. I find teaching super rewarding and just having to try to articulate why you do what you do to others and inspire them to continue, I've always found really enjoyable. How did you bring your love of performance then into teaching? As you said, you had to articulate that. What was that process like to figure out, okay, how do I get my point across? I've always approached teaching as trying to share my love of the music. If I can convey how excited I am about it to others, then maybe they could be excited about it too. I've had a few teachers over the years who are much more militant in their approach to sure, teaching sure. and profess one way to do things. That never really gelled with me personally. Um, the teachers I really resonated with are the ones who are so clearly passionate about the music that they're teaching or the instrument and that love is infectious. And so that's the approach I try to bring to my teaching. As someone who's always been interested in more left-leaning music and musical styles, I try to profess that it's okay to be interested in any kind of music and that it's all fair game. There's something we learn from all music, but the most important thing is a seriousness in study and love of the music. And if I can try to convey that, then the students will thrive in whatever they choose to pursue. Right, right. because if they have a passion for it, if they enjoy it, then, then they're going to keep coming back right. to it. If, if that's not there, then <laughs> it's hard to force passion or desire to yeah. want to learn and study and get better. You went through Juilliard and had these moments of, of teaching. And so coming out of Juilliard, what was your hope? Did you want to 
find an orchestra, find a band. Coincidentally, (laughs) I, I really had no specific goal of becoming the director of this organization. After graduating, my main focus was performing and composing. While I was in school, I founded a brass quartet called the Westerlies. It started to ramp up in activity sort of our senior year, and then once we graduated, it was sort of full steam ahead towards that. And we were performing, touring, recording. We were also doing a lot of educational outreach as part of our mission. I was also leading my own big band, composing for that. I was composing for film and television stuff. How did, how did you branch off into that arena? Um, I've always thought of composing as equally important as performing, starting in high school, actually. Um, and I've always loved film. So while I was in college, a buddy of mine in the NYU film program started roping me in to write scores for his projects for zero money. Of course, that's how for we years. all start. And then once I was a senior, I saw a flyer on this bulletin board at Juilliard that said, uh, production company startup seeks composers to add to their roster. And so I just cold emailed them and sent them a reel of all of the stupid student films that I had scored, but with music that I was proud of. Six months later, they responded to my email saying, we love your stuff. We have a series for the New York Times that we want you to score starting tomorrow. Can you do it? Wow. I was on tour at the time, but I said yes. And that began a long relationship with a specific production company, scoring a a wide range of projects, mostly in the documentary and sort of PSA realm. The music was very wide ranging from classical to jazz to world music. And it's been a really interesting process and a totally different creative muscle than writing for my own groups, writing for orchestras, writing for big band and something that I find really rewarding. I think a lot of artists these days are facing is no one gig is going to fully support what you do. We have to be multifaceted artists that kind of put our hands in a bunch of different pots and from that make a living. Right. It's something I really enjoy doing and is a good outlet for my many musical interests. I still do it to this day. Right now I'm working on a podcast about the San Andreas Fault. <laughs> Podcasts, I, I, I hear they're, they're really big these days. They yeah. are, yeah. <laughs> so coming out of uh, composition, obviously that's something that you still do to this mm-hmm. day. Uh, so what led you to the New York Youth Symphony? So uh, two years out of school, I got an email from the organization saying that someone had recommended me to audition for this position. Uh, The previous director was moving on after five years and they were looking for someone young and ambitious who might be interested and I had my own group called the Split Stream Big Band. Okay. To this day, I actually don't know who recommended me to audition. That's so interesting that they didn't. They invited six or seven people for an in-person 
interview and then they gave us each 15 minutes with the band to rehearse. And there was a panel of people in the back watching us. And I knew all the other applicants. They were all friends of mine, sort of at the same level in our careers. Um, I came in to the rehearsal with the goal of trying to win over the students and create a fun atmosphere in which they would want to improve and want to take the initiative themselves to get better and sort of try to empower them to deal with the music rather than come in with a very militant approach of telling them this is how it's done. And that seemed to resonate with both the students and the panel and they invited me to become the director. I'm curious, like, in the back of my mind, I'm going, I wonder what they were told as students. Don't say anything, don't do it, only do what the, what the director says so that we can get a yeah. sense of it. I'm just curious what they were told as far as that audition process. I'm not sure what they were told, but I know they had a say in voting who, who was selected. Oh, okay. So that was spring of 2016, and then I began in the fall. So the band is 17 students total. It's a standard jazz big band. And typically we'll have between five to 10 students return each year. And what type of music do you cover? Obviously it's in the, the jazz spectrum, but, there's, but jazz is many things these days. Jazz is many things. We cover the full range of big band music from the 20s until present day. We're very proud to commission a new composition for each concert from a young composer through the New York Yosemite First Music Commissioning Series. That was similar to whenever I interviewed Mike with the, the classical orchestra that they also commission pieces for their concerts right. as well. So that, that's a core value of the organization to promote new work and emerging composers. And that's something I'm personally really excited about as a composer myself. And I think it's such a great experience for the students to get to work directly with the composers to develop the new piece, give feedback, and then ultimately give the world premiere. That's a large part of what being a working professional is, learning how to work with composers and give feedback. And so to be able to offer that experience in this setting is really exciting. How has the stuff that you did with those summer camps and that type of teaching when you were at Juilliard, how has it changed or been the same with your experience with Youth Symphony? I think my general philosophy stays the same. It's, I love this music dearly, and I want to share that love with the students and try to excite them about the music and encourage them to go deeper. And it's an interesting educational setting because it's not a graded class. Everyone is there because they want to be there, because they're interested in playing more big band music, and because they're curious to learn. So as opposed to my college big band experience where everyone was required to be there at least six hours a week, whether you wanted to or not, and you got a grade at the end of each semester, this is much more of a willful <laughs> enrollment. And that totally changes the experience, I think both for the students and for myself as an educator. inspired you like from that young age when you were first discovering the trombone whether it's artists styles of music what's inspired you and, and kept you interested not just in the trombone but in jazz music in general a few factors one my dad is a musician 
he was a professional musician in his younger, wilder days. And then uh, when I was growing up, he was not a professional musician, but music was very much around the house. He plays piano, guitar, bass, and sings. And so from a very young age, we played together. Hmm. He would play piano, I would play trombone, we would play jazz standards. He would take me to concerts and was super encouraging, not in like a stage parent kind of way, but just, I can see you're really interested in this. How can I help foster that? Yeah. And I'm very grateful that my parents fostered that passion in myself the same way they fostered my siblings' passions for acting and robotics. So that was a huge part of it. And then in middle school and high school, because of the culture of music education at the school, there were a lot of my friends who were equally passionate about music. And that just sort of social scene inspired me to also want to get into it. And most of my social interactions in those years were centered around music. I had a little music room in my basement and I would frequently spend 12, 14, 16 hour days down there just composing, practicing, recording things, playing with my friends. That love has continued. Yeah. And has it always been the, the trombone? Did, have, did you branch out like your father into other instruments? Not, not seriously. I, I play a little piano. I wish I played better, but um, it, it branched out into like recording and production. And that was sort of an extension of composition. And I was interested in electronic music. So I started to dabble in producing electronic music. And particularly in my film scoring work, that has been super helpful because as a modern film composer, half the battle is production and you have to do that all yourself in most cases. When you compose, do you write first for a trombone and then extrapolate that into another instrument? Not, not at all. <laughs> um, I, I actually like to mix up the composition process sort of to keep things fresh and create a different approach for each project, but usually it's not at the trombone. It's called a ranger's piano. Like you can sort of hack out the chords and melodies very slowly and then write it down for better performers to Now, are are any of these compositions ever going to make a debut with the Youth Symphony? Is that Um, in the works? Oddly enough, I had applied for the commission about two months before I got invited to audition to be the conductor. And an independent panel had selected me as one of the commission recipients. And so the next season, when I was the conductor, I conducted my own premiere. How did that feel? I conducted my own music in the past with my own band, but it was sort of a funny perceived conflict of interest because everyone thought I had just selected my own piece, but <laughs> but completely it's a outside different group process. Right. Yeah. And then over the years, I've arranged a number of pieces for the group for different guest artists. And it's been a fun outlet for, for that as well. And what type of guest artists do you bring into the program? Um, so we bring in one soloist per concert. I sort of think of each season as trying to offer a broad spectrum of perspectives to the students. So we'll usually have like one rhythm section player, 
a, one saxophonist and then a brass player. Typically, I'm interested in soloists that not only are great performers and instrumentalists, but also great educators, and also people that have a unique body of music that only they can offer. So a lot of times that ends up being composer performers, people who have their own book of original compositions, because when I'm bringing them in, it's sort of a blank slate as to what we want to play. The soloist is always the best authority on their music. Right, right, especially if they composed it. Yeah. Right. And I, I try to offer like a wide range of perspectives in terms of age, background, gender, and try to create as diverse a pool of soloists as possible because that is important to this music and I, I see that as an important element of it. Yeah, because jazz has branched into so many, whether it's uh, the more traditional jazz or into hip-hop or into R&B or mm -hmm. into pop. I mean, like in the 30s and 40s, when the jazz music of that day, that was the popular music. That's what you heard on the radio. Right. So you don't hear that as much on the radio anymore, maybe a Michael Bublé or here and there. Mm -hmm. But um, but still, its its influence is in a lot of different genres. Totally. And so I assume you bring all of those totally. into play. I do not profess one style of music. Uh, I've always thought of jazz as a how, not a what. I think it's very important to study the full history of the music and to really understand it on a deep level. So that's why playing music from the 20s is a very important part of this program because in order to understand what's happening today, you need to understand where the music is coming from. Uh, technically, but emotionally, historically, politically, I try to offer that full range of history to the students. Because out here in the world as a professional, you need to be able to do it all. With the artists that you bring in, do you ever bring in vocalists as well, or is it all instrumental? I have brought in a vocalist. Last winter, I brought in an incredible young South African vocalist named Vuyo Sotashi. And he brought in a really interesting range of music from traditional South African folk music to jazz standards. And it was so cool for the students to get that different perspective. Yeah, because I think any soloist, but particularly a vocal soloist, is, is different from another instrumentalist, I, th mm -hmm. I think. And yep. so I think because then the role of the orchestra really becomes to back up and, and mm -hmm. support the vocalist, whereas with, this, I assume, an instrumentalist, you're all kind of collaborating and playing together. In all of the cases, the soloist is the one out front and they're the one being For featured. Sure. But there is something different about supporting a vocalist, the sensitivity that that requires. Um, a lot of work exists for musicians to back up singers, to be able to learn how to work with the singer and support them and make them feel comfortable is a very important skill. Yeah, and especially with jazz, because Part of jazz's tradition and history is the improvisation, the spur of the moment spontaneousness of it. And is that a, one of the key elements with jazz band that you have? Very much so. Jazz is rooted in improvisation. Absolutely. So that is a huge part of what, what we do. However, most of the students in our program are jazz studies majors at local conservatories, which means they spend all of their time working to become a star soloist, working on improvisation, honing their chops, spending way more of their time working on soloing than ensemble playing in an effort to offer something complementary to what they're getting in school, 
I really focus on ensemble playing in this group. What I find most lacking in the students coming to our program is real ensemble skills and the ability to play together, the ability to sight read, the ability to play in a section, the ability to follow a section leader really astutely. And so that's the thing I emphasize the most and the thing we spend much more time on than the improvisation. It's the same, I think, for any performer. You know, as an actor myself, I can certainly do a monologue or do a solo song, but it's, it's another thing to then bring an ensemble together and, mm -hmm. and do the, the harmonies and blend correctly or be on stage and, and do movement pieces or whatever you're doing. Totally. So I assume it's the same with, uh, with a jazz band. Very much so. I have pretty strong feelings personally about the evolution of jazz music to be much more soloist-centered in recent decades? Well, I mean, I think it's just the way of our pop culture that soloists get all the attention. And right. that bands themselves tend to not be the focus, that they don't get all the, the hype. And we, right. Yeah. But the music that resonates most with me, and I think resonates with the most people, is like band-oriented music, rather than someone taking a 10-minute solo with a million notes. That's great, that's virtuosic. It takes a lot of work to achieve that, but that's not what moves me personally. Um, I wanna hear a story, I wanna hear emotional expression. To me, that comes from a group of people relinquishing their egos and focusing entirely on playing together yeah. and telling a story together and trying to create the magic that comes with that. Yeah, it's, it's the same whenever I watch a performance, like for example, like a dance performance. It, it can be a beautiful solo, but there's something about when all, say 20 performers on stage are all in unison doing the same movement, there's something really powerful and moving about that, mm -hmm. that as beautiful as that solo dance piece was, there's something about when the group comes together with a band, then you're trying to get them to, yes, have the freedom and enjoyment of playing their own instrument, but awareness of making it one piece, as you, as you said, Very tell the story so. together. Yeah. It's all about trying to make this a group, trying to create the social dynamic in the group so that they want to come together even more. And that was something I experienced a lot in my high school band and much less so in my college band and it showed in the music and people's desire to want to be there. And so in the New York Youth Symphony Jazz Band, creating a culture of a group and shared mission and concern for each other is very important. What do you find with, with these 12 to 22 year olds? What artists or type of music do you find is reaching them? It's very wide ranging. Um, and it's, it's often music that I am either totally unaware of or am aware of but not interested in personally. And I think that's great. 
Um, and I try to create space for all of that. Well, there, there's a few techniques I use to try to create that camaraderie. One of which is that each week a student gets to bring in a recording that they're personally very excited about and share it with the rest of the group. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and just seeing what they choose and seeing how excited they get about sharing that with others is a beautiful thing. And I've discovered some music that I hadn't previously heard through that process. And I know that the students are discovering a whole ton of music. Yeah, I, I know for myself, I, you know, I, I was familiar with like some of the jazz standards, like Sinatra and that type of thing. But I really didn't get into jazz jazz until I was in college. And I was a, a DJ at, the, at, the, at our college station and it was a jazz station. And so with that, with the vast library, that's whenever I knew about Ella Fitzgerald and started getting into all the, the classics. Mm -hmm. So that, that's more like my genre is more like the, the classical, especially vocal jazz. Um, do you do you find that the students gravitate more toward instrumental or vocal? I find that they're gravitating primarily towards instrumental music and very technique-driven, soloist-driven music. Would that be like a Miles Davis kind of? No, more like a like contemporary music, like Snarky Puppy, or Which, see, I don't even know what that is. Kurt Rosenwinkel, or a little bit less recent, but Michael Brecker for example. Right, right. I have heard of him. Um, like total virtuosos of their instruments who represent the highest pinnacle of technical achievement. Mm. And also, I, f I find that students are not gravitating towards swing music. Pretty much every piece that's been shared has been a straight eighth groove, like more, coming from more of a funk pop influence. But with lots of improvisation. That, that's very interesting because, you know, 90s was kind of the, the, the renaissance for swing music and, and that old big band sound again. Mm -hmm. So is that, not that it's fallen out of favor, but it's just not what, uh, what is drawing people in now to contemporary jazz? Yeah, I mean, contemporary jazz is a... <laughs> It's, it's a, a fraught it's a fraught topic and it's a little bit of everything. There are many, sure. many opinions, and I think it's all great. Right now you're seeing a lot of global influence in the music. Hmm. And because it's become such a globalized art form, uh, there's influence from all over the world and all different types of music. So um, right now there's a huge renaissance of jazz and hip-hop R&B fusion happening in the United Kingdom that is producing some really exciting music. and hip-hop crossover happening here in New York and in Los Angeles. Which actually started, I remember when I was in college, Us Three was pretty big. Mm -hmm. And they, they did a little bit of that. It was definitely mixed with rap, mixed with a little bit of 
funk grooves. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's that type of music right. that's blending. And I think that is reflective of the environment in which musicians are growing up these days, where all music is accessible immediately and you can e- draw equal inspiration from Q-Tip and Radiohead and Duke Ellington and Hank Williams and Bob Dylan. It's all finding its way into the music. Music, it speaks to us, and depending on where we live, how we grew up, the different types of music will speak to us at different times. When you've just broken up with someone or whether you just started dating someone, your music is gonna be completely different. Totally, Yeah. Depending on what you're going through in life, you may be more susceptible to music really shaping that experience, like you say after a breakup or a move or entering a new phase of life. Music can be the soundtrack of that. And whatever music you're listening to during those periods usually sticks with you for your whole life. I know for myself, like, there are a few artists I listened to in high school that totally set me on a different path. And I still think about and go back to, to this day. With your students and these songs that they bring in, do you find that they kind of infuse that inspiration into their own playing? I can definitely see the threads of it. Like, I'm usually not at all surprised by the piece they bring in, hmm. having heard them play. And what I encourage them to do is not only study the music itself, but study the people. Because jazz is about people, it's about community. As much as you can understand about the person, their life, the context in which they were creating this music will inform your understanding of it. And something that's been really important to me in my development is looking to heroes of mine, both present and past, studying the music itself, but studying their lifestyle. What steps did they take in their life to achieve what they did? What day job did they have? Or like, what was their community growing up and how did that shape the music they made. What music were they interested in? Right. And trying to steal the thinking and context rather than the music itself, or at least understand the thinking and the context. Yeah, because an artist like Billie Holiday, it's almost kind of essential to understanding and hearing her music to know her background and the struggles and things Mm -hmm. that she went through. Then when you listen to her music, there's a depth in there and you're like, Oh, I can I can hear that pain in her, or totally. I can I can hear what she's going through because you know her backstory. Or like, what are the daily habits that these artists develop to achieve the work that they did? Right, that's as, super as, informative. As a professional, yeah, yeah. What what do they do to to rise to that pinnacle mm-hmm. that they've been at? How much have your students shaped the program? I mean, obviously, you as the director have an idea of, of what you want to accomplish every season, but how much do the students kind of maybe ebb and flow and change the direction sometimes? So one of the things I dealt with when I first started this job was an imposter syndrome that comes from being only two years older than the quote-unquote students that I'm quote-unquote teaching. Right. And I still struggle with that. But my approach has generally been to think of it as much more collaborative than a one-way street of me teaching them everything they need to know about this music. Um, and so that, that shapes the program in a number of ways. Um, while I have 
ultimate say over the guest artists and the repertoire, I definitely ask the students who might they be interested in bringing in, and I take that into consideration. Um, we also bring in guest clinicians to work with each section. So three times a year, we'll bring in a sax coach, a trombone coach, a trumpet coach, and a rhythm section coach to work with the students. I, I definitely ask the students who they might be interested in having come in to coach because there are more opportunities to do that. Um, and then on a day-to-day -day basis, I really try to empower the students to take ownership of the music themselves. I ask them, how do you think this could be better? Or I ask the section leader, how is your section doing? How could they better support how you would like to play this phrase? As much as I can create an atmosphere of collective ownership of the music and care, that seems to result in a much better performance. It's been said many times, jazz is the embodiment of a perfect democracy. They have to work together in harmony to create this music that is a shared experience. When it comes to performance time, while I'm up there waving my hands, you don't really need a conductor in jazz in the performance. They know the right, music right. well enough, and once you count something off, unless there's time changes, generally I could just get out of the way and they would do great. So my job is to create an atmosphere in the group in which they have total ownership and control over how they play. How has being with the Youth Symphony and the jazz program, how has it changed your own teaching, your own playing? How has it influenced you as an artist? Teaching with the Youth Symphony is an amazing opportunity in that I have a full academic year with these students. And so thinking about what is possible in that long span of time. We meet every week, each Sunday evening for two and a half hours, and we perform three major concerts and then three free community concerts. So six performances a year. And so trying to think about that season as a whole and what experience I wanna offer the students. What values do I wanna convey? What music do I wanna expose them to? What skills do I feel are important for them to develop? Um, that's a unique opportunity and something I haven't had in the week-long jazz camp I might teach in the summer or with my other group, the Westerlies, we do a lot of educational work and that's usually going into one school for an hour or two. Um, it's a lot of time and it's a huge opportunity to really shape these students' perspective and it's not something I take lightly, but it's forced me to really think about what values I cherish and how I could best convey those to the students and try to get them to share those same values. What is it that keeps you going in music and that you hope to impart to them? First of all, it's a love of the music itself and a belief in the value of this music to really change lives, both of the performers and of the listeners. And in this digital age where everyone is so glued to their smartphone and um, distracted by all of these different barrages of content and media and news and likes on Instagram, right. the opportunity to sit in a room with other humans 
with no digital distractions and breathe together and play music together that can then convey emotions from the composer who lived a hundred years ago through these young musicians to listeners who can then find joy and um, peace in this music is an incredibly deep thing and something I think we need a lot more of in this world. Absolutely. And I try to convey the gravity of that opportunity every week. Like, this is a very special thing in this day and age and something we shouldn't take for granted. So that's one thing. A level of seriousness that I think is required for success in this day and age. Because I, I do think that a lot of times that the work and the, the craft that goes into making it, wh whether it's performing or another business, um, the dedication that goes into it, I think is lost on some people. Yep. And I, I see a lot of students all over the country. I see a lot of musicians in New York and the ones who are successful and the ones who create really meaningful work to me are the ones who take it the most seriously. And that reflects in every aspect of your life, how you structure your life, how you prioritize your time. I can't emphasize enough the importance of seriousness to one's craft and dedication. You can't force that on students. It has to come from love and it has to come from obsession with the music. And so if I can try to foster that love and obsession and emphasize what work is required to achieve the best result, then I think the students will be better off. And also how difficult of a path it is, how much rejection you will face your entire life. Absolutely. It is not an easy path. It is, to this day, I, I'm still trying to figure that out. And if it comes from a place of love for the music itself and a seriousness to one's craft, then all the external stuff doesn't matter. Like, you can get the best gig in the world, but that can just as easily be taken away. However, if you have a love of your craft and a seriousness and a dedication to it and a mastery of it, that's some, something that no one can take away from you. And that is valuable. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me on the program. And I'm glad we got to talk about you and your wonderful students. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. To find out more about Andy, the jazz program, and all that the New York Youth Symphony has to offer, go to nyys.org programs. Join me next time when I talk to John McNally, a professor of English and an author whose most recent book is entitled The Promise of Failure, One Writer's Perspective on Not Succeeding. For more information on the interviews in the Spotlight series and to catch up on other episodes of the podcast, go to whyillnevermakeit.com. And don't forget to follow on Instagram and Twitter for updates, inspiration, and news. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, and thank you for listening to the Spotlight series presented by the Wild Never Make It podcast. Take care. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.